0: Hello everyone and welcome to Beware the Artist. I am very excited to have uh, Ken Teza on the show today, the infamous Ken Tisa. Um Ken, hello, how are you? Hello,
1: nice to see you, Jeremy.
0: Um, so if you want to start off by just kind of talking about who you are and what do you do?
1: Well, my name is Ken Tisa, as you know. Um, I'm a, I call myself a painter, though I've had a practice that has used ceramics, fibers, photography, collage, drawing, um, but all done through a painter's eye. Um, Since the pandemic started, I kind of um, uh, was trying to figure out, I remember March the 13th was my last day teaching at MICA. And um, I came back on the train that night, and there was not going to be school. And um, so I said, oh, this, this thing is probably going to last for a few months. What am I going to do to keep myself occupied other than paint? I want to do something that responds to the situation. So I decided I would do a journal, a pandemic journal. Um, I had these two books that I bought in Italy years ago, and they are both handmade books, handmade paper, you know, super expensive, and I've had them now for five years, and I open them up and caress the pages, touch them, put them back on the shelf. They're too pretty. And then I decided now's the time. So I decided to take the first book, which was a leather-bound Florentine book, mm-hmm. and document every day that I was in quarantine. And that turned into a real practice because it, uh, it not only freed me from any restriction, but it gave me, the ideas became incredible that I was exploring because I had no, I had no preconceived notions about what I would do or how I would do it. I just, anything that came, the, the project was anything that came into my head, I would paint or draw. That's what I did, and one book led to another book, and then uh, there are three books all together. And the ideas in the books became really exciting for me, you know. And I, because I, I, I'm used to a certain way of seeing, but this allowed me to see in different ways that I usually put a a damper on because I don't want to deviate from you know a series or you know, something, an idea that I'm developing. I don't allow any other ideas to come into it. Here, I let any idea happen. And uh, it opened up a world, like Mm -hmm. a major world for me. Um, I worked from April to July on the two books. Uh, No, no, I'm sorry, on one book. And then from July to August, I worked on the second book. And that was a daily drawing or painting. That was the deal I made with myself. I had to do something every single day. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a document. It would be a sketchbook, and I didn't want to do a sketchbook. I wanted to do a project that really documented every single day. Um, I've done this before. I did it in the 90s when AIDS was prevalent, and I was losing so many friends. Um, I did a tiny little paintings. Um, They were like eight inches by 12 inches. I did a painting every single day. I I ended up with I think five or 600 paintings. It was an installation of paintings and memorabilia from from people. Um, This project is, I gave myself an 11 by 14 scale which was bigger than eight by 12 but not too big that I couldn't finish a painting every day. Um, and, uh, after the second book, um, I decided I needed to work off paper and, um, try something else. So I decided to do a painting a day on a panel, 11 by 14 panels. They're gessoed panels and I use gouache and watercolor and ink pens. And, um, again, no rules. We were talking earlier about Anarchy. This is an anarchistic project because I have, I do absolutely anything I want. I don't make a judgment about it. I just do it. Some of them, obviously I like, and some of them I don't, but it doesn't matter if I like them or don't like them, they go up. This installation will eventually be floor to ceiling and it's going to, obviously it's going to be huge because this pandemic is still going on. It's Mm -hmm. going to be a project till the end of the pandemic. Do you see
0: any um, connections and themes between the the imagery that's created from the the project you did in the 90s to kind of this stream of consciousness that's happening um, today?
1: Well, the project I did in the 90s was mostly figurative. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was all about the body and uh, the external body, the decay of the external body and um, pop culture and um, what was going on at that time. Um, I'm finding that this is more about internal Um, I do some figures I Mm -hmm. I, if they come out I do them but it's really more about the body the internal workings of the body the brain Um, I sometimes I think of them as dream maps Mm -hmm. um, because I'll wake up the first thing I do in the morning when I wake up is paint very first thing I've always done that though Mm -hmm. so this is just an extension of my practice anyway but with this, it's not just drawing, I, I use paint. So um, I call them drawings, they're paintings, basically, or well, even the ones on paper um, are paintings. Um, and I, I've been posting them, my project has been on Instagram, I post everything on Instagram. So it's an ongoing project, a project that people are following. And I realized that people are part of the project. It's not just about me working on these things, putting them away and existing in my studio with me. Mm-hmm. the reaction, the comments, and the likes and dislikes of people seeing them become part of the project. So this has become bigger than me in terms of how people respond to it. It's been very exciting. Um, I mean, I get, I do get negative comments. Of course, it's the internet; it's, it's inevitable. I get age. some really, yeah. oh, I get some nasty comments from people. <laughs> but you know what? That's part of it. You know, I expect it, um, and um, it's been keeping me sane. Uh, seriously, I mean, I, I, don't think I've ever been alone this long in my life. I live mm-hmm. alone. Um, I. I have one person in my pod, whatever that is. I have one person that I occasionally see, mm-hmm. and even that is weird because social distancing and masks. Right. So basically, I, it, this is about being alone. And when you're alone this long, I never, yeah, I'm always alone because I'm an artist. I, I have my practices being in my studio with my work, but it was my choice. This isn't my choice. Mm-hmm. I hate not having a choice. I hate being told what to do. And basically, I'm being told what to do. We all are. And yeah. we have to follow it because it's about not just our own health, but it's about the health of our loved ones. So we have to be careful. So um, I'm following yeah. the rules, which is something I, I'm not used to doing. Um, <laughs> and I hate following rules. I never like following rules. So, um, so th- this whole thing has been a new process for me. It's an old idea that I've used before, but a completely new concept surrounding it. Yeah, I mean
0: the the idea previously, everyone was kind of you know they were disappearing one by one around you, um, and now uh, it's almost as if we're disappearing from society, having to turn inwards on so much of our life, and and there's so much self reflection that's happening um, with this point in time, having to be so isolated um, that. I can, I can really see this, this stream of consciousness happening through these daily
1: pieces, which is, it's exciting to me. Well, thank you. I, thank you very much. It's, it's, a, it, it's exciting to me and it's kind of, I feel guilt-ridden sometimes about being excited in a time that's so scary. Yeah. And uh, I mean, not only do we have the pandemic, but we have Trump, a lunatic. And I'm gonna just do a tiny little brief scream out. He has caused me more anxiety than this pandemic has Uh, because I'm looking at our democracy, I'm looking at our society, our culture fall apart around us while we have a leader that's encouraging people to hate each other. It's everything I always... I, I, everything I never dreamed I would see in this country. As fucked up as this country can be, I never thought I would see what I'm seeing. So that ha- also has a lot to do with it. There's mm-hmm. a lot of anxiety in these paintings, um, a lot. And that anxiety comes through, I hope, because um, art, we, you and I were talking earlier about art being about truth and, mm-hmm. and um, every artist has to tell their own truth. And so I wanna make sure that my work is as honest as it possibly can be. And by not censoring it, I'm allowing it to be that honest. Even if there's a painting I don't like, I will hang that up Um, because there's a lot I don't like in the world Mm -hmm. right now. Um, There's also a
0: level of vulnerability to that as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I look around at the art world in New York and what I'm seeing is a disaster happening. But I'm also seeing a lot of young artists that are developing new ways of communicating and new ways of, of showing work. I mean, uh, probably for me, it's not right because I'm not technologically skilled, I'm a Luddite. And, uh, but a lot of young artists are using the internet in ways I can't, or I don't want to. Mm. Um, and artists are very inventive people, you know, the, you know, being an artist is being an inventor every day. You, every time you make a work of art, you're inventing something that no one's seen before. So, um, this will lead to a, a new way of seeing art, a new way of looking at art in a new way of express, experiencing the art world. Um, regretfully for me, I'm too old to really have that experience. I'm going to watch it. I don't know if I'll be able to participate in it, though I am using Instagram and that's new for me. So, um, you know, I, I can't say I'm total, a total Luddite. I know how to push a button.
0: So, so all that being said, um, how, do you, how do you see the role of the artist kind of changing um, with this use of technology? Is it, um, are they still touching on the same themes, the same, um, the same kind of aspect of what the art functioned as, or is it becoming something
1: else? Well, you know, art has always evolved with society and always changed with society. I, I like to look back at history a lot. And um, I was telling you earlier, I did a talk on art and chaos and war and plague. And in doing my research for that talk, um, I discovered all these amazing works of art that were frightening, like images of hell. Mm -hmm. I remember, um, you know, looking at when I was in Florence, uh, looking at those frescoes of heaven and hell um, and thinking, wow, hell is really exciting. Heaven looks really boring. All those pretty people with long flowing hair, but hell has people getting devoured and eaten. Mm -hmm. And then of course led me to Bosch and Goya, you know, and I'm thinking artists have always dealt with societal decay and destruction. And they've always dealt with it in the way that their technology allowed them to. Mm-hmm. So whatever technology will have, young artists will use it. And it will, it will uh, technologically will change, but the basic thing of truth is gonna be there. Artists have to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. We see the invisible and we see the visible but we see what lies beneath the visible so however whatever mediums are are able artists are able to use they'll use and yes it will change it will evolve but the bottom line is art is about truth and that will always be
0: what would you say um would be something of a dream project for you i know that's kind of putting you on the spot but one thing, you've, uh, one thing you've always wanted to maybe go for, but never had the funds, or maybe it was just something too large to actually grasp.
1: Well, I think if I could ever show this work, it would cool. be a dream project. Because there's going to be probably about five to 800 paintings by the time this thing is over. That's going to require a huge space Mm-hmm. I'm not counting my chickens, and I don't know if it'll ever be shown as one piece, but that's my fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have to be honest with you, I've lived so long that, you know, I have, I've pretty much done everything I've wanted to do um, so far. I mean, I, 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 have, I was talking to a friend the other day, because, you know, we're talking about death. Everybody's all, you know, mm-hmm. so we talk about in a time of plague, you know, you know, will, I, will this kill me? You know, will this kill me? Mm -hmm. And we, and somebody was talking about, oh, they have too much they want to do. And I was saying, you know, I've done, I've done pretty much everything I've wanted to do so far and, um, I have no regrets. So no, I think just showing this work would be a big deal.
0: Now, with, with that being said, and just the the longevity of your career and everything that uh, you've kind of worked through, everything that you've seen, um, what has been kind of the best piece of advice that you've, that you've received as an artist and what is the uh, piece of advice that you would wanna pass on to an upcoming generation of creatives?
1: Oh, um, that's a good question. Uh, my feeling, and this is what I've always talked to my students about in the past, is that to be an artist is to be a timekeeper and to understand that your gift is your responsibility Mm -hmm. is to keep time. So when history looks back at the time you lived in, they will look at your work and know what happened, know who you were. You'll never die. You're always going to be there immortalized in that work of art. I mean, think about we look at Michelangelo. Um, We look at Bosch, Bruegel, any of the greats, Goya, you look at those artists and you look and you see the time they lived in, the horrors they went through, the Mm -hmm. joys they went through. And we kind of get to know them. So they're never gonna be dead. They're always alive. So my advice to artists is to understand your responsibility and to don't take it for granted. This is a special, special gift. And I know I'm being, you know, making artists seem like they're better than other people, they are. Sorry. I mean, I like being around artists. I love being around other artists. We're all assholes. Everybody's an asshole. I mean, Mm -hmm. or not, doesn't matter. But this magic that we do is really exciting. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about it. You go to a museum and you're looking at a 2000 year old pot and it's giving you chills. Come on. Mm -hmm. Could do that
0: that we do that that, yeah that experience um when i was when you were teaching me when we were in florence together um you assigned the book einstein's dreams and i remember um reading the chapter on i I think it's then and now and uh it, it it brought on so much anxiety in in myself because i thought well am i am i living in this moment or am i um creating for something that that's unobtainable and I'm, I'm not really thinking of it. And it, it really made me sit and think about making work for myself in, in this moment in time um, and trying to alleviate the pressure of the setting of Florence because you're surrounded by amazing artwork after amazing artwork every work. Work on every yeah. corner. Yeah, and I mean. and, and it, it was a little overwhelming, but it's one of the... Um, the biggest lessons that I ever took away in my um, kind of art school experience was, was to create for, for the moment and, and right. understanding who I am at this point in time and reflecting on that and bringing that truth forward in the work that I was making. Um, at that point in time, I wouldn't say I made any, any good work, but um, the lessons that came through and the experience of that um, has definitely influenced me up to this point.
1: Well, you've actually said that better than me. You just summed it up. Yeah, (laughs) you know, yeah, that's exactly right. And Florence was a magical place. I mean, it blew my mind. Uh, I mean, I lived in France for eight years in the South of France, but that was about nature and light. And um, Florence was really like every, you walk down these cobblestone streets that Da Vinci, walk down, that Michelangelo Mm -hmm. walk down. I mean, and you think Botticelli, like this tiny little city with, you know, I was just reading a book, uh, speaking of Florence on the Medicis, uh, which I highly recommend. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were talking about a dinner party that uh, Cosimo had. I think it was Cosimo uh, or Lorenzo. I think it was Cosimo. Um, Leonardo, uh, Botticelli, Boccaccio, was it Boccaccio? No, um, uh, uh, Brunelleschi, The Dome, um, and about four other geniuses. And I'm thinking, how on God's name was that dinner party? It must have, how could the greatest minds that ever lived in the West all sitting around dinner at one time in one place? It blew my mind to think about it. And I lived, when I was in Florence, I lived right behind the Medici Palace in an mm-hmm. apartment. So I would always walk by it every day. And um, I remember thinking, oh my God, how how incredible we are to be here. That was yeah. a really extraordinary time.
0: Honestly, one of the, the highlights of, of my life, just being able to, to live there and absorb everything. And um, I, I'm a huge art historical fanatic, so being in that space and time and being able to study these things in person, um, we talked earlier about, um, yeah, it was ma- being able to see reproductions, magical, and actually experience it, and then even going to Rome and seeing um, Caravaggio chapels and and, and things oh, like that God. are just it, it, to to see honestly the the chapels articulated almost as an installation space I mean that's what they were they were installation they were in, they, they, they were just paintings um and and they were curating an experience um that's 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 something that's not cultivated in our textbooks that we have um for reference
1: no this is another thing that uh, for me this is for me art is about experience it's not about like secondary looking like looking online, looking in a book. uh, I prefer books to online, but even that. Mm -hmm. um, It's about, it's an experiential situation. Like what happens between you and a work of art, that that negative space in between the artwork and you becomes activated and becomes electric when that piece talks to you. First time I had, that, I had three experiences with artworks that going to sound, I'm going to sound, okay, really crazy right now. So, you know, um, I was in France, uh, you know, I was director of the French program for MICA in the south of France, and I used to take the students to Paris for a week. And I would always take them to the Guimet Museum, which is the Museum of um, Asian Art in Paris. It's mind boggling. Mm-hmm. Um, the French were in uh, Southeast Asia, like um, Cambodia, and um, Vietnam and Laos. And they vacuumed up all the Khmer sculptures they could find, brought them back to Paris. And I was in the ground floor where all the giant Khmer monumental statues are. And I hear my name called, Ken. And I turn. I thought it was one of the students. And I turn around, and look, nobody's around me. And, then I continue on and I hear my name called again and I'm not and this I'm not bullshitting here I'm uh-huh. telling you yeah. the truth and um, I turn around and there's this Khmer statue and I hear it talking to me and I said am I going nuts I know <laughs> I, I know I'm not on drugs I know'm I'm, I'm sane what's going on the statue spoke to me and I'm not I can't tell you what it said I mean you know it was words, yeah. though. Yeah, yeah. It spoke. And I, I, had, I never had that experience ever in my life where a work of art talked, and this was a gorgeous, gorgeous Khmer statue. It was elegant. It was sensuous. It was everything I love. Mm-hmm. So it spoke to me. It was my friend. It became my friend. The other experience I had with the work of art was when I was 19, well, I should have started when I was five, my first experience. My five-year-old experience was at the Philadelphia Museum. My mom took me, it's the first time I had been to the Philadelphia Museum and I'm from Philly. And um, uh, we were walking and through the main entranceway and there's this huge staircase. And on the top of the staircase at the time it's not there anymore because I've been back since, was a Rubens, is it Ruben? I think it was Rubens, painting a Prometheus bound. It was this muscle man lying on a rock with an eagle, with kind of this vaginal opening mm-hmm. on the side of Prometheus, pulling his entrails out. Well, that was it. I had, that was my first event, my first art event. I stopped in my tracks. I couldn't, I would not leave that painting. And I think it was the, it was my first taste of eroticism. Mm. It was my, you know, here was this naked man, fully muscled with this sensuous sore with sort of penile protrusions being pulled Mm -hmm. out by an eagle. That was it. I was in love. (laughs) Uh, And then the, the, other experience I had when I was in college was my first trip to the Prado, um, The Garden of Earthly Delights. I was 19. I saw that painting, that, cha- that painting changed my life. Mm-hmm. Changed my life. Literally, I was one way before I saw it and I became someone else after I saw it. This is what art can do. Art can talk. It could make you eroticized. Or it could change your life. So I had mm-hmm. those three experiences. I was lucky. And so for me, art has to be an experiential thing. Yeah, it, I, it, I agree. I most artists agree. Mm-hmm. Unless you're doing work specifically for the, you know, online presentation, mm-hmm. film, photography. I mean, you could do other things that you can look at online and get that experience from. But when it comes to painting and sculpture, I think those have to be experienced mm-hmm. in person. We were, we were talking earlier
0: about um, kind of my experience with Rothko and um, seeing these color field painters through my art history books. And I'm, I'm saying to myself, oh, I get uh, I get it, but I, I'm not really a fan of it. And then I saw a show at the Hirshhorn of his actual works in person. And to, to stand that eight to 10 inches away fully experience it have these colors wash over you and and really feel the emotion that's provoked through um through the application of the paint um was was something that I never expected to experience not only from a painting but from a color field painting and that it blew my mind and and that was one of my seminal experiences of being changed before and after seeing a work of art and, and really feeling what a flat two-dimensional space could do. I mean, they're not necessarily flat, but um, there's so much depth in, in these paintings, but it, it definitely changed my experience. Well, they're fl-
1: they're flat. He I mean, changed a flat surface into a surface that had insane depth. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, we're talking about this gift that artists are given, this mm-hmm. ability to change people's lives. I mean, you know how many people are given that kind of gift that uh, we can do something that somebody could actually cry over yeah come
0: on you Or, somebody or to change, over a
1: work of your art
0: or to feel an image to, to feel an image is something that's that's it's intangible um, to, I felt the pulse right of these paintings and yeah
1: right well a lot of a lot of the early medieval work and um, pre-renaissance frescoes were done with a different mindset because a lot of those paintings were done on the churches. Mm -hmm. Um, They weren't seen as static images. Like we look at a painting, it hangs on a wall. It's a static image. It can move within the, within the frame, but Mm -hmm. most people see it as a picture. They didn't uh, in, in medieval times, they didn't see these paintings as pictures. They saw them as moving images. Mm. They didn't have film. They they were illiterate. So the only time they got to see, you know, any activity and color and beauty and smell and light and was when they went to church and they saw those frescoes. It's like going to the movies. Yes. You, yeah. you, you saw this whole scenario happen up on the ceiling and it was mesmerizing. So, you know, why, why are there so many Bosch's in Spain? Well, at the time, Spain, you know, had never, the Netherlands was part of Spain, but the Spanish upper class was so repressed, they were so repressed, Catholicism was so extreme there that the only outlet they had was art. So they patronized the wildest art you could find. You look at a Bosch painting and you go, what were they thinking? I mean, you think of these proper cardinals and you look at Bosch with the farting flowers and yeah, yeah, devils eating people's you know genitalia, you know, and you go, what were these cardinals thinking? What they were thinking was this was fun for them. They finally had an out. They could look at these paintings and go into these stories and get out of their repressed lives. So um, you know, that's another thing we could do, you know. Yeah, and
0: Bosch just. It, it's like taking acid it's it's it is like taking acid. it's 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 so immersive and the uh, amount of intricacy is is unbelievable um, well there's
1: a theory that he was part of a hash cult that really um, yeah that uh after the crusades a hash entered europe and of course they didn't have the prohibitions like all this stupid shit that we have about like <laughs> Uh, not being able to smoke weed or take, you know, hash, so uh, there was a theory that um, in in the Netherlands, uh, that area of uh, Flanders, mm-hmm. um, that there was a cult, a hash cult, that Bosch was part of, and it makes when you look at his paintings, it makes complete sense. It's so fitting in, in the yeah, best way I mean, possible. Absolutely, Bruegel's another one. You look at those paintings it's another one he had a good time Bruegel is an art he you know he showed the dancers he showed people the peasants having a jolly old time and he also showed hell yeah I mean those guys were clued in they they uh they knew what was happening
0: I like to think to myself sometimes kind of think about their facial reactions as they're in their studio and they, they step back and they get that moment they get that little smile and then they go back in they're like okay where can this go next and they're they're just genuinely you, you can feel their their excitement through through the work they're having a good time as they're making they're not necessarily just these um, you know religious reproductions
1: no I always wonder you know um, there, I mean there's not a lot written about Bosch but um, I always wonder if he knew what a genius he was if he mm. knew how how because that one, especially the Garden of Earthly Delights, would change the history of art. Mm. How, you know, why is, I mean, when you look, have you seen that painting? I have You've seen been to the, the f- painting, Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's huge. I mean, I, I only saw in reproduction until I saw it in person. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was, again, mind-boggling. It's a gigantic painting on both sides. Yeah. You know? uh, so, you know, it, it, it's you, you, looking at art history. I mean, it's museums are necessary. I know people have issues with museums. I love museums.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, a lot of people don't. I do. I love museums. I I, I love the Met. Um, I I used to before the pandemic. I used to go every week. Mm-hmm. Um, I spend an hour, you know, with one of my favorite pieces. Um, and it changed every week. My favorite piece changed weekly. Um, I used to love the Greek rooms, you mm. know. Well, I like anything ancient, I like ancient art, mm-hmm. you know. But it comes
0: through in, in the, the, the figures that you, you choose to depict in your work. They they, they do, they have a very uh, sculptural kind of aspect. Well, they come out of
1: Greek sculpture, yeah. actually. Thank you for noticing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, also, that kind of brings me to a, a topic. There's, there's so much of your work that is, it, it's based off of collecting and, and, you, and, and you have these amazing collections and, and a lot of them come from your, your travels as well.
1: Um, do you wanna speak to that at all? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Collecting is a major part of my life. It was, I don't collect anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've collected since I'm five years old since I, I started with rocks and seashells. I still have them actually from when I was a kid. That's amazing. Then I, I, I collected comic books and I collected dolls and I collected, I mean, now my, my, well now I don't collect, but I have this big collection of action figures that I like mixing up with classical ethnographic art and um, European porcelain. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I'm, you know, when I'm in the mood um I usually put things to I put things together things that shouldn't belong together that's like what I like to do in my painting I like putting things that shouldn't go together together um, I like being bad <laughs> uh, my bathroom is my uh, action figure central um, I have shelves in my bathroom whenever I feel like playing, I go in there and start moving all these action figures around and I put them with African art, with Asian art, with European art, I just mix it all up. Um, I did a show a few years ago that where I had an opportunity to do that my fantasy was to do a show about my collection, and I was given that opportunity It was so much fun. Mm-hmm. It was so much fun because I saw the collection. I never see my collection as individual pieces. Their things are always part of other things. They never sit alone. I'm not tasteful. I like overdoing everything. Mm-hmm. So uh, my house is, you know, a lot of collections, a lot of stuff. My art's a collection. I never do a single work of art. It's always done in conjunction with other works of mm-hmm. art. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's an intrinsic part of my work is collecting, was collecting. Now using that collection, I'm planning on mixing up objects with this work at some point. I'm not sure how yet, but usually I'd probably mix, put shelves in between the paintings with, you know, a porcelain vase that maybe goes with a painting or, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of working that one out.
0: And uh, another aspect of, of the, the span of, of, of this long career is that you've, you've been teaching during this time. Um, how has teaching not only kind of changed over the, the span of your career as a art professor, but how has it influenced your kind of daily life mm-hmm. and, um, and
1: your practice if, if it has? Well, that's a great question. Cause I think about, I, I thought about that a lot. Like I love teaching. Teaching was became a passion for me. Um, I, I first, my first experience of teaching was a nightmare. I taught at Yale for a year, and um, but I was not teaching artists. I was teaching undergrads like lawyers and doctors. that were taking art as an elective, and it was like root canal. You know, they didn't get me. They did not understand what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And I did everything. I did some setups in there that would make any art student cry and weep from joy. And they did not get it. (laughs) Once I set up the whole room, I lived across the street from the Salvation Army, and they were having 50-cent day. Uh, You could fill a bag with anything you wanted for 50 cents. So they happened to have, at that time, racks of prom dresses, 1950s prom dresses. I bought about... twenty dollars worth of prom dresses which filled the entire classroom so I strung them up on clotheslines all over the room so you Mm -hmm. couldn't stand up without bumping into a satin prom dress and I told everybody sit on the floor and draw what you see I was so excited that's amazing yeah well yeah they couldn't do it They didn't, know what they, they didn't know what I was doing. They kept saying, well, what am I supposed to draw? I said, look up, draw that. And it was a fail. I was a mm-hmm. failed teacher. So I said, I never wanted to teach again, ever. Mm-hmm. I will not do this again. So it wasn't until Micah invited me in 1988 to come down to do a visiting artist gig, uh, which I didn't want to do, but I figured, well, what the hell, it's one day. Mm-hmm. Well, you yeah, know, I walked into that classroom and I saw all these Micah students looking at me with hunger. And I said, oh, this is different. This yeah. is a different ball game. And I threw my notes away. I had like a stack of notes, like, you know, I was like writing ideas. And mm-hmm. I just threw it all away and started talking. And uh, it was love at first sight. I fell in love with Micah and the students at Micah. And I thought, this is something I need to do. This is something that I've been given. And I, so I made sure I did it well and I made sure they hired me back and, um, and they did. And Micah at that time, you wouldn't have recognized that it. it was like, a, you know, three buildings, you know. It it's in the tavern. Art- it was the tavern, not, count, <laughs> not counting the tavern, it was three buildings, the tavern was four. Um, but, you know, it was run by artists. Uh, it was funky and, you know, nowhere near the facilities that they have now. And, but it was like a, it was a real art school. I mean, mm-hmm. it was really like hardcore art and it was such a joy and um, teaching Has changed, you know, along with the Garden of Earthly Delights has changed my life. Um, uh, I love teaching and I'm gonna miss it. I do miss it. Um, I miss having that in person communication and the, you know, having talking about ideas. And because, you know, artists are very smart people, even though they might not be as well read as other people or as a student, some things, you can't bullshit an art student. Mm -hmm. they will recognize bullshit five miles away. So I realized whatever I tell these kids, I better talk to myself. It has to be, not only am I talking to someone else, I'm talking to myself. So I always think of teaching as looking in a mirror. Mm. Whatever I say in that mirror has to bounce back to me. So I have to make sure I'm telling the truth and I'm also preface everything was this is my feeling. There mm. can't be a universal in art and in teaching. You're talking about what you think. And what you think doesn't mean the world. Yeah. So, you know, I think a good art school is where you have professors that understand that. And then understand they're talking from their own experience, but that experience is open. like. I know that I could like something and someone else can hate it. Mm-hmm. Who's right, who's wrong? We're both right. Art gives an experience to the viewer. I happen to be a teacher. So my my experience gets talked about, but it doesn't mean it's right yeah. for everybody. Yeah. I,
0: I also believe that, um, you know, professors and teachers in general, they, they learn just as much from the students as, as the students are learning from them. It's a, a cyclical um, kind of exchange.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. If you're teaching and the students aren't giving anything back to you, it's torture. Mm. It's torture. You know. Yeah. You know what it's like. It's like when I got to Micah and I realized teaching artists, real artists, is a whole different experience than teaching art. Mm, yes, you know, true. Teach, you, you, you can't teach somebody to be an artist, it, it's like anything else, you're born that way, you're born with art DNA, and it's up to the teacher to bring that DNA out, sometimes an artist won't go on to be an artist but they'll use that creativity to, for, you know, for successful careers.
0: Yeah, they'll bring the, the idea of creative problem solving into every aspect right, of their life. Exactly. You know, they're thinking out of the box and how to reapproach things from that opposite angle, but yet still create this goal. Um, so.
1: Some of the smartest people in the world that I've known have been artists. Also, mm. some of the dumbest, but mostly smartest. But mostly smartest. <laughs> I mean, um, in terms of how do you solve a problem, talk to an artist. They'll always figure out a way. Mm.
0: All right. I think that is the perfect note to uh, to end on. Ken, thank you so much. Oh, for this a, is a pl- a was a it was a pleasure.
1: It was a pleasure.
0: I really enjoyed talking. It's nice seeing you again. Nice seeing you as well. Yeah, yeah. Um. Again, thank you, and uh, make sure you guys tune in next week for our next episode. All right. Thanks.
1: Bye. Take care, Jeremy. Bye. Bye.